As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicine they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicine issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said, talking is the best medicine. In this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who've dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that impact millions of people around the world. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by Global Health Impact Project in partnership with PlankSip. Welcome to Talk is the Best Medicine. I'm your host, Diana. In today's episode, we will be doing something a little bit different. We are joined by two speakers, Sharon Ann Lynch and Gozi Arandu. Sharon Ann Lynch is the Acting Director of the Global Health Policy and Politics Initiative at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Healthship. She has worked for more than 20 years in the global health, access to medicines, and humanitarian fields. Starting in 2009, she served as the Senior HIV and TB Policy Advisor of MSF's Access Campaign, influencing the policies of national governments, bilateral and multilateral donors, pharmaceutical corporations, and other global health actors, and leading numerous advocacy efforts related to innovation of and equitable access to diagnostics and therapeutics for HIV and TB. More recently, Lynch has focused on access to COVID-19 vaccines and diagnostics. Dr. Ngozi Arandu is an infectious disease epidemiologist, recognized global health security expert and public health thought leader. She was a contributor to the West African Ebola response and has lent her knowledge and experience in health systems, policy and global health governance to several governments across Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East and South Asia. Her extensive body of research has focused on strengthening disease surveillance in health systems and improving data for research allocation and decision-making. She has also authored several notable articles advocating fairness in global health science and development funding. Sharon Ann and Gozi, thank you so much for joining us today. First, we'll start our discussion with Sharon Ann, and then we will move on to a conversation with Gozi. And then following that, we'll just look at some questions from our audience. So Sharon Ann, can you briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself landing in this kind of work? So you've already gone through a little bit of my bio. I started in the South um, working on racism, which frankly for me was like fighting fog. So I was quite attracted to the ACT UP way of working, which once my friends started dying of AIDS, looked at uh, ending AIDS by addressing one barrier at a time. And behind every barrier was a bad policy. Behind every bad policy was a person responsible. So, and that I found uh, effective and took it to heart. I moved to New York before ARV combination therapy was available, um, which 1996 is still a time where I look at people like, you were, you were born after ARV combination therapy was invented or before. Um, fast forwarding, you know, I spent four years in Southern Africa, started a HIV and TB treatment project with my colleagues at MSF 
in Lesotho, and at that point, the death rate was uh, higher than the birth rate. So our our job was working with the nurses at the primary healthcare center to uh, provide comprehensive HIV treatment. And still, I think about my the first time I saw someone being handed their treatment, right, in terms of this combination pill, a generic three-in-one combo. And it had the same drugs as those that were available in 1996, right, that became used and kept my friends in New York alive. But it took until 2005 to get it into the into the hand of, of this young woman who was being treated. And mind you, at, in the mountains, um, people would pool their, their money and decide who among those living with HIV based on, you know, they made candles, they sold candles, who they would pay for transportation to be able to be lucky enough to get to the hospital, the one treatment center. So the idea was decentralize, get treatment to people where they live and get treatment in any case. And so this idea of uh, one, just seeing the, the power of patents inhibiting access, the high prices, and also power not being placed where it should be that elongated the, the sort of time to population. So why did it take from 1996 to then 2001 when the generics became available at a reasonable price to then in this young woman's hands in the, in the mountain? And so that's been this, the motivating factor ever since and to address the inequity that underlies that delay, obviously. That's very interesting to hear, and we're so excited to hear a little bit more. So let's get started. As you mentioned, you have extensive experience with being an activist for improving access to medicines and allowing people to have treatment to HIV and TB. Um, what are the biggest current barriers to access, and why can we not look to the private sector for a solution to these barriers? So the private sector is set up in order to make profit. And so, and certainly I have a list of complaints of, of, about both that model and how some of their practices are excessive. But if we also look at where the responsibility should lie in terms of protecting public health, it is with government. Where government abrogates their responsibility is is the crux of the issue. So you've got governments that fund biomedical research and development, those that do a lot of it and the most most of it, which is the US government, those that don't do enough, um, including many emerging economies. If you look at just the US government that is responsible for the bulk of the research and, and development funding, they could and should make sure that the the innovations, the fruit of, of the funding uh, benefit as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And yet there's no link between that funding and access. So whether in the US, you know, people make the, the case in terms of, well, taxpayers are, have to pay twice. They pay for the innovation and then they pay again for access to the product. Likewise, we've got a situation where uh, people are expecting the market to work it out and markets are market and healthcare do not get along. So rather responsibility should be with government and government needs to be a whole lot smarter in terms of how medicines and medical innovations are conceived of, how they're developed and how they're delivered. Thanks. Thank you so much for that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and talking about access to testing and diagnostics and treatment for that. 
So in a recent article, you discussed the ways in which the Biden administration can expand access to COVID-19 tests and treatments to lower and middle-income countries globally. Why is it important for the U.S. government to take a more comprehensive approach rather than just focusing on COVID vaccinations alone? So I just want to say, especially because... um you know, the second half of, of today, we'll be discussing about decolonizing global health. And there's there's both responsibility to do no harm and responsibility to address a global pandemic, which uh, lies with all governments, including the U.S. government. And it's timely in terms of there's a global COVID summit that the U.S. government brokered with a number of people that's happening in May, where, again, governments are going to make certain commitments. What we... Um, need from the U.S. government is multifold, and we can get into that. But the reason that we talk about not just vaccinations alone is, one, just the reality, right, where in high-income countries, while 80 percent of of the population hasn't received at least one dose of a vaccination, that drops to 15 percent in low- and middle-income countries. So the reality is, is that we need than vaccines. Also, we've never successfully addressed any infectious disease with just one set of tools, right? Whether prevention, diagnostic, and therapeutic, we need the full array. And especially with the novel antivirals that we have today, those at high risk of disease progression could benefit the most from treatment, including the elderly, immunocompromised, those with underlying conditions, as well as, again, the unvaxxed. So one of the treatments that we have for um, the one treatment, I guess I should say, that we have that is oral outpatient is called Paxlovid. So it's made by Pfizer. It's been shown to reduce death by up to 89% in high risk unvaccinated adults who are able to start treatment quickly within a three to five day onset of symptoms window. So, but keep in mind also that the innovation pipeline, we hope will deliver Um, similar to HIV, frankly, a combination treatment that could benefit more people rather than such a limited indication. Awesome. Thank you for that. So also in the same article, you talk about how generic and low-cost suppliers can make sure that affordable COVID treatment options are available, along with testing, but their entry into market needs to be accelerated. That's the argument that you make. Can you tell us more about how intellectual property might act as a barrier to this goal? So just as what the analogy with HIV drugs early on, generic competition has been able to bring about, you know, a 90% price reduction from when ARVs were first developed. So when I started working on global HIV, ARV regimen was, uh, for one year, was $10,000. Now it's less than $100 per patient per year. So the situation with COVID therapeutics is is not any different. It's just that we, just like we couldn't then, but we have to be more insistent now, we cannot wait for the eight to nine to 10 years for a typical drug that is approved by US uh, FDA to become affordable in low and middle income countries. So we need that generic competition faster and in more countries. So intellectual property, in the form of a patent, but that's not the only barrier, has been used to protect profits, right? Um, and in this case by Pfizer, they've patented the, the drug Paxlovid widely. 
Um, so some of the countries that are excluded from a voluntary license that has been given to the medicines patent pool, it includes many upper middle income countries. It includes countries in Latin America, Eastern Europe, Central Asia. And those countries are seeking compulsory licenses, that is, to be able to get around the patent to either produce or procure generic versions of, of this drug that will be developed. So there's IP, intellectual property, in the form of patents that continue to be a barrier. And then there's something that's on the table that is rather uh, novel. So a, a couple of years ago, at the start of the pandemic, some countries got together and proposed a waiver from the intellectual property restrictions. The trade-related intellectual property um, aspects is called TRIPS. So this TRIPS waiver would be for all COVID products both therapeutic, diagnostic, and vaccines. So while the US, for example, embraces the, the waiver for vaccines, they're resistant in terms of treatment and diagnostics. This means that we're gonna go back to the way it was in terms of country by country, drug by drug negotiations, such as what's happening right now in Dominican Republic and Colombia, they're seeking compulsory licenses, as opposed to just, my goodness, it's a pandemic, people are dying, we're making things worse. If you flip the switch, then you can allow access to affordable treatment sooner for people who need it. Thanks. Thank you. You mentioned the analogy between our current COVID situation and um, programs for HIV. In that same article, you say that for COVID, it's essential to link testing to treatment and care. Yeah. And this was true for HIV as well, yet it took far too long to implement. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on some other ways that the global can community can speed up this process? So to learn the lessons from HIV and bring aid speed, right, to, to COVID, and, but faster. Um, so in the case I just, I just gave you where we worked in Malayalaya and Lesotho, which is decentralized, you decentralize at the get-go rather than introducing at the tertiary central levels and then decentralizing only after years. Also the feedback loop in terms of what practitioners learn in terms of what works best can happen much faster. And also let's not overly stovepipe, right? In terms of, in terms of service delivery, an integrated service delivery strategy that uses the existing in community-based primary healthcare platforms could be great, especially when combating other infectious diseases, including HIV and TB. Also, you need that primary healthcare you, uh, level if you're going to truly identify the people who are most at risk, especially those who could benefit from Paxlovid and those that I said are more likely to develop um, morbidity and likely die unless they receive timely treatment. So decentralize quickly, uh, address the IP barriers, obviously, but integration as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Sharon Ann. So now we're going to turn to our conversation with Ngozi. Ngozi, can you tell us just a little bit about your background, your work, and your experience? Sure. Um, hi, Diana. Thank you for having me on. Um, so like you said in the introduction, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. Uh, most of my work has really been in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, where I've worked a lot on um, evaluation of surveillance systems, um, participating in uh, disease control, like specifically like outbreak and epidemic response, um, as, as well as doing quite a bit of um, sensitization on different types of uh, diseases and symptoms and things like that with um, frontline health workers uh, across 
kind of what we term the global south, which I don't, I don't love that term, but I don't have an, another one. Um, so I really got interested in um, doing this type of work um, just from a very young age. Um, I'm Nigerian American. And I just remember going to Nigeria and having, you know, relatives specifically um, getting sick with malaria and just wondering how come, like, if you think about the U.S. and the Southeast and, you know, it's perfect condition for malaria. I um, mean, they had malaria there. We know that's why the CDC was even developed, uh, was created in Atlanta. It's like one of the only agencies that's not in Washington, D.C. was really to combat malaria, which was uh, killing a lot of uh, um I think specifically then it was like troops in, in the Southeast. Um, and, you know, seeing how the global North and these wealthier countries get over so many different infectious diseases in particular, uh, because of all the things that Sharon Ann said, because this access to drugs and access to countermeasures and vaccines and things like that. I just never thought it was fair, you know, that people in the same planet were suffering from different things that we already had solutions for. And of course, there's other things specifically with malaria uh, that help with recruiting, you know, development and infrastructure and things like that. But there's still so much that can be done for so many different um, communicable diseases. So I always, like, I went into global health thinking, you know, how can I be part of, you know, this aspiration to like bridge these two worlds? Um, and so that's how I, I got involved uh, but my entry point was through disease control and response. Awesome, thank you so much for that. So we'll just start off by having you explain what the term decolonized global health means. Can you explain what this term means and how the colonization of global health has hindered African-led research and institutions? Sure, let me start first with just a definition for decolonized global health. Um, I think there's many out there, um, but often when people are saying decolonize global health, we're thinking about thinking back to where global health kind of originates from. So before there was global health, there was um, tropical health um, and hygiene, there was international health. And this really stems from um, colonial, basically instruments uh, or colonial entities that were conducting research or providing um, protection and sanitation and all these different terms that are used for the colonizers in these different tropical countries. So when it was tropical medicine, they weren't talking about, okay, like how do we, how do we bring solutions? Uh, like I, for example, to reduce malaria among a local population, they were thinking, how do we ensure that often, well, always these white settlers or these white colonizers um, are not dying from these diseases that they're not used to and exposed to. And so a lot of uh, research and testing and experimentation um, was often done on the local populations, again, to protect uh, the white colonizers. And so when you're talking about decolonizing global health, you're really thinking about uprooting those structures and those systems um, that continue. They, continue. they didn't stop after all these countries got their independence from um, colonial powers like you know Spain or England they kept going like when when everything is ran by a certain um, group of people, when everything benefits a certain group of people, but all of the work and the labor um, is done in one country, it's called extraction, it's called um, neocolonialism. And global health has really kind of followed that pattern in many ways. You know, I 
mostly talk about like research and um, science, uh, but, you know, Sharon Ann talked about, you know, working at NGOs and, you know, international NGOs, multilateral organizations, this type of uh, colonial behavior um, is replicated throughout the global health ecosystem. And so decolonizing global health is really about uprooting those systems. I would say not even like modifying them, but really like completely revolutionizing them to be completely different because it's it's such a it's such a, a challenging foundation that there's really no point of just making tweaks here or there, which is what often happens. Um, so that's what decolonized global health means to me. Um, I think your second question was about uh, how does it hinder African-led research and in institutions? Yeah, so I'll give some examples specifically. I think that will also help to kind of illustrate what decolonized global health means. So when we're talking about, you know, something being done in one place and the beneficiaries from somewhere outside, um, that one example is for something that we call parachute research. So, you know, it's, it's very common for young researchers or even not so young researchers, but researchers to kind of start their careers, those who want to work in global public health, to start their careers by um, doing some either early research, including like doctoral research or um, working with NGOs at an early stage of their careers. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when, you know, this happens very often, like someone will go in for like a month, they will kind of uh, exaggerate that month on their CV and then they become the expert in, you know, A or B or C um, topic and that person um, because of where they come from and how they look, their knowledge trumps the knowledge of the local person. I've seen, I've seen in many cases, like early 20 year olds, you know, coming in in specific NGOs and being like supervisors and leads for, you know, folks who've been working in a, in a field for uh, two decades, you know, like the, it, it actually doesn't make sense. And, and parachute research is when you go in, you do that you take the data and you ignore all of the data collectors who helped you to get uh, to, to finish that research, you can, you take full like attribution and recognition for the work that you did without recognizing other people. Um, and, and also I think this, this issue of lack of uh, recognition is something that again, it's rooted in colonial times, but it continues to stay with us today. Um, one example that I always give is about how Ebola was quote unquote discovered. We always hear about actually my last uh, director of London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, which was uh, Professor Peter Piot, of him being the person who discovered Ebola. But it really was a larger story. Um, there was a pro the professor in, um, in Congo um, and he was called, it's Professor Jean-Jacques, and I'm, I'm forgetting his, his surname at the moment, which is a problem, but like he, he was the one who went and got the samples. He was the one who exposed himself. He didn't have, sorry, Jean-Jacques Moyembe. He didn't have personal protective equipment, no gloves, nothing. He's the one that put his life at risk, him and his team um, in Kinshasa, Congo, to try to understand what this mysterious disease was. And yet, because uh, Professor Peter Piat worked at, um, he was with the uh, Institute of Tropical Health in Belgium, because he and his team, and um, also a team um, from CDC Atlanta, were the ones who actually, you know, they had the technology, they had the ability to analyze that. You know, his career was really built on that, and he is globally recognized, where many people don't even know the name Jean-Jacques Moyembe. Uh, so, you know, these this type of exclusion and erasure uh, 
there's so many things to call it, racist, discriminatory, uh, colonialist, uh, but it, it really hampers people's careers and it really hampers the ability uh, to build that capacity and profession um, in low, low income countries. Um, I know we're talking specifically about Africa, but it happens everywhere a lot. So like very much so in Africa, but it does happen uh, throughout kind of low income countries. Thank you. So more specifically, we wanted to discuss your open letter to the scientific community in response to a $30 million grant, which was awarded to the nonprofit PATH. And this grant funded seven institutions in the US, the UK, and Australia to help support African countries in the improved use of data for decision-making. So why didn't the grant include funding for any African institutions to help understand a problem that is really prevalent and a burden for African countries? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question. Structural supremacy and discriminatory practices is embedded in global health, where we think all of the talent and the intelligence um, and the expertise reside in wealthy and rich nations um, in the global north and not in the global south, which is just categorically untrue. We can see that from the pandemic, where so many um, countries and researchers and practitioners in the global south and in Africa in particular have uh, been essential to, they, they have this knowledge of responding to epidemics and responding to outbreaks. Um, they have these connections with communities after decades of working in a lot of that uh, knowledge and the ability and the opportunity to transfer it to the global north where it was just not even tapped into uh, because of this kind of perspective that we know better than they do. So I think that's why they, they weren't funded. I think, you know, if you ask them, they, um, not PATH in particular, but a lot of funding organizations, um, they would say like, oh, it's really challenging uh, to fund African institutions. They don't have the right financial uh, like mechanisms. Like they don't have, um, it's not good accountability. It's very difficult. But I think that's a very lame excuse. Uh, first of all, um, African, many African institutions receive funding, um, not as much as need that need to, but many have the administrative um, and the financial kind of accountability uh, skills uh, within their institutions. Um, but also if, if that's going to keep being ex an excuse, you're going to continue to allow that specific um, capacity and ability to, to be able to monitor grants and report, you're going to allow that to, to be weakened and it's going to continue to be this cycle of you know no funding of African institutions and using the same excuse. So, uh, like I said, a very good question. Um, yeah. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about how exclusive funding, which excludes African institutions or lower and middle income institutions that aren't traditionally funded, would be problematic in terms of weakening local health systems in those communities? Yeah. Again, not having the opportunity to actually know how to manage a grant yourself, I think weakens you because you're always dependent on a, kind of an intermediary, usually, which is based in the global north to kind of handle things for you. Um, I also think it weakens the impact of whatever that grant was supposed to achieve or whatever the funding is supposed to achieve. Like a lot of times um, when you're a subrecipient, but even if you're a prime recipient, the so the prime recipient of a grant can impose whatever um, reporting standards onto a subrecipient. So while someone may receive money from, let's say, since we're using the example, we can say uh, PATH, like say you're one of the uh, seven institutions uh, in the US, UK, Australia that 
receive money directly from Pat, but you're not going to be the one, you know, for the next three months collecting the data and doing, those are people like in country. So you make a sub grant to them because of this, like lack of trust for African institutions or this assumption that they are more corrupt or less accountable than people uh, in Western countries. A lot of times, um, institutions impose a lot of reporting requirements. So you spend like all your time writing reports, all your time showing where like every dime has gone. And PAP may not even ask for that from the institution. Like it's the institution asking for that from from the local um, African organization. And if they're spending all their time doing the reporting, when is the time to actually do the work? So I think that's another way that it like weakens uh, the local system. Um, And then finally, just if, you know, one thing that we wrote in the article is just how much money, especially US, um, uh, US funding, USAID funding goes to back to Americans um, to do this work in all these uh, poor, poor countries. Um, if all that money is going to them to do like grant management, to pay their staff, to do all this stuff, then, then there's not, there's obviously not enough to do the work in the country, right? And so you have less organizations that are being funded to do very critical work that affects their own communities. So these are the three ways that I see um, this laborious, unnecessary um, funding system that we have, how it really handicaps uh, local organizations. Thank you, that was very insightful. So. Let's talk a little bit about your recent article on the World Health Organization. So the World Health Organization is a global institution that's in charge of providing guidance during international health crises. However, some argue that the WHO can be inefficient. So can you describe some of the problems that we're dealing with with the WHO and why it must be empowered to perform optimally? Yeah, I think it's a really good question and and really timely. I mean, Every like large bureaucratic organization is inefficient in some ways. And I don't think that's an excuse to like totally tear them apart or, you know, throw them out, even though, you know, I guess in the U.S. in particular, people would argue that that might be a reason for the government. But I don't agree. Um, I think there's different degrees of bureaucracy. And I do think the WHO um, at times and for for a while has fallen into like being very bureaucratic and and slow because of that um, when especially in emergencies, we need it to be fast acting and fast reacting. Um, for WHO, the it, it really, one of the reasons why it is so bureaucratic and it, it lacks empowerment is really the way that it's funded, right? Like it's funded in a way that member states, all the different countries that, you know, are part of the UN system that um, kind of said, you know, we are going to be invested in WHO and be a part of this like global institution, they have a mandate kind of like a, a voluntary, sorry, like a mandated amount of money that they're supposed to provide to WHO um, to ensure that it, it runs and it functions uh, well. But most, most of these member states do not provide what's mandata- mandated. Um, then there's also vo- voluntary um, contributions that can be made. And so about 20 member states provide 75% of the funding for WHO. And of course, it's like the more wealthy countries like the US and China and uh, the UK, for example. And, you know, if someone, so they provide their mandatory contributions as well as the voluntary contributions, whereas other countries don't even provide the mandatory contributions that they should provide. And so even though WHO is in theory, um, it, it is, 
accountable and it should be reporting to all the member states. Like if, if 20 states are giving you most of your money, in reality, you're probably going to be more likely to respond to them, uh, to take on their recommendations. Um, and there's going to be a bias. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges with WHO is the way that it's funded, even with the way that it's funded um, with these member states. There's also funding from Bill and Melinda Gates um, Foundation and other private entities. And people ask, should private entities be able to fund WHO in WHO's goals and what WHO does? And these different fundings, especially since um, some of the funding is voluntary, some of the funding comes from non-state actors, it's it's really, um, it fluctuates a lot. And so WHO is asked to do like, like honestly, to be kind of the health organization for the world, but it has a very small budget. Even with all everything I've described, this budget is still smaller than most like very large hospitals in the US or in Europe. Um, so it's underfunded and it's funded is um, not consistent. So I think that's um, some of the ways that that's a main reason why it's so bureaucratic, why it's so slow. Um, and I think getting the funding right for WHO will really help it to, I hope, to be more streamlined because there have been other reforms in the past that have focused on streamlining WHO and there have been improvements, but with such a low budget and with all these fluctuations, I think it's very difficult for it to do the work that it's mandated to do. Thank you. That's a very interesting point that you made about funding. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about how we can give the WHO, quote unquote, as you say in your article, teeth other than funding, how can they act on their purpose by making sure that countries comply? As we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic, certain states violated international health regulations. So how can we make sure that the WHO is able to actually enforce the policies that they set forth? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really challenging giving WHO teeth. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's challenging because um, health, you know, is not the same as like security. So, you know, with the UN Security Council, like there can be sanctions if you go against like different um, kind of international laws or international agreements where with health, that's really not a part of it. And WHO is not that type of agency. Um, I think that WHO being more independent and autonomous would would make it um, more influential. I also think that restructuring restructuring their agreements between member states and WHO would help. So there's a lot of talks going on right now about like a pandemic accord or pandemic treaty or uh, a council of, of, you know, kind of like influential countries in addition to what like WHO needs to stay there, I believe. Like I think there's so many investments. Um, there's so much good work that they do. They, they are very effective and operational when it comes to health emergencies and other things as well, vaccinations and things like that. Um, but I do think there needs to be more involvement beyond health. So I think, you know, WHO often operates through what we call a, a national focal point, uh, specifically for international health regulations or health security. And that person is usually, or that group or that entity sits in the Ministry of Health of every country. But we saw with the pandemic, health emergencies don't just stop at health, right? Like everyone had to stay home. So the economy is affected, Um, you know, we have to travel differently. And so uh, travel and transportation is affected, exports and imports, everything. And so I think also, expanding the expert base within WHO, or at least in the decision-making structures of WHO to include those different um, uh, different experts and disciplines, I think will also strengthen it and give it 
I think it'll strengthen it. I think giving it teeth again will have to be about changing the agreements that member states have with WHO. Um, and I think countries will have to enact laws, um, national laws that that say uh, we are going to comply with WHO to do A, B, and C. I think that will make a big difference and that will allow WHO to have teeth. Awesome, thank you so much. So at this point, we're just gonna transition into some, some audience questions that were submitted beforehand. So we'll alternate the questions between the two of you, but you're both welcome to chime in at any time. Um, so since you just finished, Ngozi, we'll start with you again. Diseases such as COVID-19 affected the whole world and not just WHO member countries. So would the WHO be able to take action against non-member countries in some way who are not complying with recommendations? If not, do you think the WHO should be able to do this? I don't think there's that many non-member um, WHO countries, but I do think that, I mean, they exist though. <laughs> I do think that um, not just the WHO, but countries in general should be able to uh, take action about uh, to countries that are not complying with the recommendation. I mean, the truth is even member states didn't comply this time. So we have a larger issue. Um, but I think, you know, some of the ways to uh, dissuade countries to, I guess, incentivize them to comply would be to do what we kind of already have done. So if there is a major, um, another major pandemic and member states are complying with WHO and in regards to, you know, uh, public health interventions, uh, restriction of movement, mask wearing, all those other things, but then other countries that are not part of WHO are not, then those countries should not be able to travel or to be let into different countries because they pose a risk of infecting a lot of people. Um, so I think there's different things that um, member states can do. I think WHO can will probably continue to put out recommendations for those states, but I think it has to be, I mean, the thing we lacked in this pandemic is unity. We, we really lacked it. A, a lot of what um, Sharon Ann talked about, about access to medicines and treatment. I mean, that, that was already there and it was just like magnified during this pandemic. So I think if we, if the WHO member states can unify um, and act in a harmonized manner, I think that would uh, encourage and probably force non-member states to, to comply. Thank you. So Sharon Ann, relating to Ngozi's point about unity, how do you think the spending of all governments can be reprioritized so that we can ensure the health and well-being of all people? So I did talk a little bit about research and development and making conditions, but you know, also just taking off on what Ngozi said about WHO, I want to raise one thing. When the avian flu um, epidemic started in 2005, WHO responded by creating a, um, a framework for action that was unified. It was called the Pandemic Inf Influenza Preparedness Framework, PIP. Now, what is so different about 2000, when that came about in 2006, sorry, um, versus now is the proliferation of global health actors and the changes in the global health landscape that all, by the way, are headed by gray-haired older white men. And so rather than WHO, being able to have the space, the funding to lead and negotiate directly with companies, all the companies that wanted to sell products had to go through WHO. 
Instead, look what happened. One act day that was supposed to bring together all of the different global health actors had more of the CEOs and executive directors of these international agencies than they had governments that were affected, including low and middle income country representatives. So stop the proliferation of actors, bring back good governance, but also we need, we need to have a change in emphasis. Who do we care about and how do we measure success? One of my heroes, Dr. Alan Berkman, who uh, long history about him, but we worked on global AIDS together and he said, you know, Jack, my nickname is Jack, we made a mistake. We made a mistake in terms of like making about AIDS drugs for Africa, as opposed to making it about children. He said, you know, you always want to measure what is your success by the most vulnerable. So let's thank children for pediatric HIV. Let's thank drug users for hepatitis C. Let's thank prisoners in terms of how we talk about our progress on, on TB. And in the case of COVID, it's the unvaccinated. And it's the unvaccinated in countries where they do not have access. So unless we have a change and unless we embrace solidarity, um, it's going to continue. Same, same, same. Also, can I do the, the cheesiest thing I've ever done in my whole life? But I kind of can't help it. It was written about this poet who passed away. She was an early activist in Russia, and for that, against the in Russia's invasion of Czechoslovakia, uh, she was institutionalized in a mental institution. So this first line of this poem that I was reading says, why speak of trouble or beauty when the, bod when the happy body, forgetful, it's blah, 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 itself wants to be deceived. And sorry for saying blah, blah, blah for a poem, but it's either that. It's either we're going to continue to be deceived in terms of the real way the world works and confronts it, or we're going to be complicit. And either if you don't confront the trouble, then how can you respect the beauty? Thanks. Oh, that was amazing. Thank you so much. So on the opposite side of this idea of unity, Ngozi, do you think that if the WHO tries to impose some compliance methods that the UN uses, such as economic sanctions, military action, do you think that that would push some countries away and it might push them to withdraw from the WHO? Yeah, thanks for the question. I just have to say, Sharon, I love that one. That was insightful. Um, like I said earlier, I, I think it would be very difficult for WHO to... Um, impose sanctions and do things that other uh, UN entities do because it's really not built to do that. But there have, I mean, different kind of responses to lack of compliance have been suggested. Um, but I guess in short, yes, I do think that it will cause uh, certain countries, especially like the big countries like China, Russia, the US, um, I think they will not get on board. Would it cause them to leave the WHO? I mean, depending on leadership. Yeah, I think that's very uh, possible. I mean, those, those three countries that I just named, they didn't even sign a joint letter that was calling for a pandemic treaty, you know, um, and the, in the US in particular, uh, expressed concerns about like, you know, how the pa pandemic treaty really just saying that, okay, we should all come together and we should think about like, what needs to be in place so that another pandemic doesn't happen, or if another pandemic does happen, we we agree that we will do A, B, and C. Like the White House was not happy with that. They said, you know, this is diverting resources and attention. Where we we want to focus on pandemic response. Basically, just you know, 
trying to find a way out of agreeing to work with other countries, um, which they've done when it comes to climate change um, and other very large, you know, international agreements. So um, I think what would help for the WHO is having like an independent but connected uh, council or board that is able to, um, you know, conduct investigations, um, like specifically around like origins of outbreaks and things like that, some type of mechanism that may be able to determine sanctions, but it should be independent. Um, it still should be under the UN system, um, but I don't think it should be under WHO, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Thank you so much. So Sharon, Ann, um, I don't know if you have anything to say about what Ngozi said, but I do have one final question for you, if that's okay. So governments and various health institutions have often received criticism regarding their ability to combat international health crises like HIV. This similarly occurred during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think that this criticism is warranted or is COVID-19 fundamentally different in that it was severe, widespread, or unexpected? Oh, I kind of thought I had my mic dropping moment with the poem, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So listen, I, it's, there's so much that is obviously different than, than the previous experience, right? In terms of HIV, where it's like, you know, a triple com combination therapy uh, developed in 1996, everybody in high income countries was like, well, we've got ours, you know? And then the question for Africa was, I remember writing this on so many chalkboards and whiteboards and presentations and slides, which is like, Africa only represents, what was it at the time, 3% of the overall pharmaceutical market, right? And yet you persist in protecting pharmaceutical industries profits. And here it was very different, right? Where that expression fools Russian, it was the rich Russian. They rushed in and they gobbled up to protect their their countries in self-interest, the, the diagnostics, they rushed in for the vaccines and they rushed in on the therapeutic. So US bought one sixth of the overall supply that Pfizer is producing for this year, right? So, and that happened even more egregiously with vaccine um, vaccines around the world. So the, the question is, um, given that it's such a different situation and that we're a couple of years in, what does corrective action look like? And it starts with that kernel of solidarity. But listen, even in my son's school, if we can't get parents to have their kids mask, given there's vulnerable children and vulnerable parents, then, you know, what does that, what does that growing out from there mean? So it is a question of just that existential question. What kind of people do we want to be? And I mean, what kind of earth do we want to live on? Is it, do we just continue to accept that a certain level of, of people ever growing will suffer, will die, will not be able to care for that? for their families. And so for me, it's about confronting again, the person behind the bad policy. So if, if the US government is within the stone's throw, literally, and I can focus on the COVID summit to try to bring about some change, I will do that. I, you know, also there are activists in low and middle income countries that are starting to make demands, not you know, as they have been for treatment, uh, sorry, for testing and vaccines, but also for treatment. So we need to take care. What is the next available treatment that is going to be emerging from the pipeline? What is that company already agreed to in terms of set aside future capa manufacturing capacity?
so that low and middle income countries aren't left to to battle over scraps, but are thought in the beginning of the framework. And countries, whether the upper upper middle income countries, middle income, low middle income, high income, the global health actors, all of the gray hairs, uh, ex executive directors of all of these different agencies in WHO, all have some leverage that they can play here in terms of whether we will have life-saving pills into bodies. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you both so much for being here with us today. But unfortunately, we are running out of time. So before you guys go, I'll officially give you an opportunity to have your mic drop moment. And I'd like you each to give us a closing message or leave the audience with some questions. Is there anything that you would like the audience to know? We'll start with Sharon Ann. Well, I want to know what you're going to do about it. I mean, anybody in, in school, you're going to be in charge. So the first thing you do is you kick out the oldies. I am an oldie. We need to both in terms of civil society and academics start passing the, the mic. Because believe me, when I was, let's say, in school and talking to a 52-year-old like I am now, you better believe that I probably had more energy, more angst, more anger, and more time to confront things than this 52-year-old does because you're, you're going to need to challenge all of us. So that is the question is hopefully everyone's up for it. Awesome. Thank you. Now Ngozi will turn to you. Yeah, I mean, I think my my question to the audience is uh, similar. Is about I'll, I'll focus on decolonialism. Um, like, what are each one of us going to do to break down these systems that uh, continue to oppress, ignore, and erase human beings? Um, also, you know. I think it has to do with each one of us thinking differently, but obviously acting differently. One thing that we can do in our privileged positions of being like in, you know, Western institutions in the global North and things like that is to really expand our definition of credibility um, in a very humble and appreciative way. We do not know everything. Different regions around the world have expertise in so many different things. And if, we, if you're going to come into the global public health realm, there needs to be respect and appreciation. And this approach to partnership and um, individuals uh, to ensure that they have dignity and recognition in the work that they do, just like you want for yourself. So I think I would push everyone you know, listening to this or watching this to think about how you as an individual can break down these systems and also how you can uh, push your, your institutions uh, to, to stop kind of perpetuating harmful ways of engaging with uh, countries and people from around the world. Amazing, thank you so much. Thank you both again for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you. We'd also like to thank the audience for joining us today, and we'd like to thank our sponsors. This podcast series is part of an Epidemic Ethics WHO initiative, which has been supported by FCDO Welcome Grant 2147-11Z18Z. We'd also like to thank Professor Nicole Hassoun for her executive production and Dr. Ryan Wolch for writing production, along with our interns, Diana Deddy, writer and host, Elizabeth Van Tassel, assistant producer, and Noah Mizrahi, assistant producer. I'm your host, Diana Deddy, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine.